um, Exodus chapter 16, Exodus chapter 16, we're moving on through um, this book. We've got about five weeks left, I think. Um, we'll read the whole chapter together, Exodus 16. Um, if you're visiting, uh, my name is Jerron, one of the pastors here. Um, hope you're made to feel at home. I'd love to talk with you later, meet you. Um, also, welcome everybody online. Thanks for joining us. Exodus chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Moses, we would have rather died in Egypt. We would have rather God had just killed us there. At least we had food and we'd be full and dead. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you'll know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you'll see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Moses and Aaron are making it extremely clear. It's not us y'all are mad at. You're mad at God. And then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. So say to them, at twilight you'll eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I'm the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord's commanded. Uh, this is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. And you shall take each an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some part of it, some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And on the sixth day when they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord solemnly, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake and boil what you'll boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside to the morning as Moses commanded them, and it didn't stink and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. 
Six days you'll gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. Do you see? Verse 25. You go out in the field, you won't find anything. Verse 27. Some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord's commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate ate the manna 40 years so they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border land of Canaan. And Omer is the 10th part of an ephah. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Speak to us. Show us who you are. Tell us about you today. We want to know you more. We want to see you more clearly. We want to be yours more faithfully. So help us. Amen. I, um, if you were to ask me, uh, Jerron, can you swim? Uh, my answer would be I can survive. Um, I don't frolic. I don't splash. I don't play games in the water. I survive if I need to. Um, I actually blame my mother because she, uh, shout out mom. Thanks for watching. She, uh, she never put me in swimming lessons as a kid. Honestly, I didn't even know swimming was a human possibility until I was about nine or 10. Didn't know humans could do it. Um, the day I learned that swimming was a thing. Um, so I'm about nine years old. Let's go back to 2000, 2001. Um, little Jerron is talking to two of his best friends and they started talking about this thing they do called swim. And my first thought is, what are one of those? I want one. Fast forward to that summer, Camp Dry Gulch in Adair, Oklahoma, um, where every good Pentecostal kid goes to church camp. I'm there um, for my first ever church camp experience. And they take us to this swimming pool where there's a water slide. And I see the water slide with the pool and I think, that must be a swim. That, that's what that thing is. So I walk into the field, I mean into the swimming area, I climb my happy tail up that water slide. I weigh no more than a medium bag of dog food at this point. I'm about 48 pounds and I'm about as uh, round as a light pole. And they put one of them floaties around my waist, those circle donut things that clearly doesn't fit me. And they push me down. I start going down this thing and my skinny tail catches enough speed to where I slide right on out of that floaty. So I'm flailing down the water slide. I get to that little bit where the, where it's the little incline that makes you to float. And I kid you not, I have dreams about this once a year. I vividly remember being in midair, no floaty, and the thought hit me, I have no clue what to do right now. I actually don't know how to swim. And then immediately, boom, splash, I'm at the bottom of this pool. Um, luckily, the man I told you about who got me to fake speak in tongues in the sixth grade, luckily he was in the pool and he could pull me out of the thing. He saved me twice, apparently. Um, 
And so I went back to these friends and I was like, so how'd you do that? How'd you learn to do that thing, that swim thing? And this is when nine-year-old Ron learned that adults could be bad people because they told me, well, we learned how to swim because our dad would hug us, carry us to the deep end of the pool, and then just throw us in. And we were forced to learn how to swim. They learned how to swim by their dad throwing them in the deep end of the pool. That deep end of the pool ended up being a place that their dad put them in to teach them to swim. Um, the overarching theme of the end of Exodus 15 through 16 into 17 is God. He's put Israel in the deep end of the pool, if you will. Um, instead of putting them in water, God has put them in the wilderness. Uh, the wilderness, it's this place of awkward in-between. They're, they're in-between. They've come out of slavery to Pharaoh, but they've not yet come into the land God has promised them. It's this in-between space. God has walked them into the wilderness. And the wilderness in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 specifically, the wilderness is where God put these people so that they could learn to believe. God put them in the wilderness so that they could learn faith. God walks his people into the wilderness so that they could learn faith. You know how Jesus describes this time we live in right now, church? Uh, The book of Revelation, it's Jesus giving John a revelation of human history from heaven's perspective. Revelation chapter 12, there's a little bitty verse tucked away where it says the brothers and sisters of Jesus, us, are in the wilderness until Jesus comes back. We church right now live in a wilderness. It's this awkward in-between space. Bible scholars call it now, not yet. We've been brought out of slavery to Satan and sin, but we still live in a world that's affected and impacted by sin. We've internally been redeemed and made new, but the world that we live in, our bodies, they don't yet reflect the newness of God. You still have sin. You still deal with sickness. You still deal with pain. We are still engaged in spiritual warfare. We're in this place where we are redeemed, we are saved, but we have not yet made it to the completely new heavens and new earths. We're in this in-between wilderness space. And it's in this wilderness that just like the children of Israel, God's teaching us faith. So let me give you a framework for how to look at any situation of your life as long as we're in this wilderness. Here's the framework. He's forming faith in this wilderness. When a church goes through something that feels like hell, the framework that we have is in this wilderness, he's forming faith in us. When your family is struggling and going through it, the framework for your family is in this wilderness. He's forming faith in us right now. He forms faith in the wilderness. So what I'm going to do, I want to title today Faith 101. Uh, Because we, just like the children of Israel, find ourselves in a wilderness where God is teaching us faith. He's got us in a classroom called the wilderness. But we've got an advantage. Paul in Romans 15 says the things of former were written for our instruction today. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says we can look at the people in the wilderness and learn from their example We can learn from the people who took the class before us. So what I want to do is I want to pull out four lessons from these former people who went through the wilderness that we could take for ourselves as we walk through the wilderness. Sound like a plan? Cool. Um, Before we go, I want to give you a setup. 
the, the situation that these people find themselves in. They are about a month into the journey. And when they left Egypt, they had food. They packed their bags. The only thing is God didn't tell them how long they'd be walking. So, 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 so they get about two weeks in and they look and they say, huh, these bags getting kind of empty. It's okay. God will get us there. We'll be good. Three weeks in, God, it's looking kind of slim, but he'll get us there. We're good. Here we are four weeks in. Their bags are empty. They look up. Aldi ain't close. They don't see a sign that says grocery store to the left. They have no food, and it doesn't seem like they have any way to get food. They had a legitimate need, but they didn't see any way to meet that need. Have you ever felt like that? That you got a legitimate need and don't see any way to meet that need right now? Like you sense a legitimate need for connection and friendship, but you look around and don't see anyone that you'd consider a close friend or anyone that you'd see as a possibility to develop a relationship with like that. Or you sense a legitimate need to, to, to be a meaningful contributor to the mission of the church in something big and eternal, but you don't see any place for you to step in and do it. Or just, I mean, extremely material. I mean, you sense a legitimate need to put food on the table and keep the lights on, but you don't see any way to make extra money legally. That is, I know you've thought about selling drugs. <laughs> well, the, the, the question we want to ask, the situation God's speaking into is, I'm trying to teach you faith when you sense a need and see no way to meet that need. So the question we ask is, what's God telling us about when I sense a legitimate need but see no way to meet it? Here's the first lesson. Lesson one, God wants you to know that a complaint not brought to him is a complaint brought against him. You see the pattern in verses uh, two, three, and four. Verse two, the people's stomach starts talking to him. Feed me. They respond to their stomach talking to them, and they respond by talking to Moses. You should have just left us in Egypt. I wish God would have filled our house with flies. I wish we would have had sores on our skin. I wish God would have just killed us. At least we had food when Pharaoh was beating us down on our back. We would have rather died there. And then in verse four, it's God who responds to the people talking, not Moses. And then after that, God says, and Moses say, you were complaining against me, God, not Moses. They're going to Moses to complain was an indirect complaint against God. So imagine you plan this party. You invite like 20 people over. It's going to be a good party. Nice 4th of July party, if you will. And you, 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 you plan the meal. You plan the time. You get some games to get people talking. You spend hours prepping and getting everything ready. And people start coming over. And about 45 minutes into dinner, someone says, why are we eating taco salad? That's the stupidest meal you could ever eat at a 4th of July celebration. Then about an hour later, someone says, we're playing Uno? Who plays Uno? If you heard someone talking about that, talking like that about the party you set up, you'd take that a little bit personally, wouldn't you? Because their complaint about the setup of the party is really complaint about who set the party up. Them saying taco salad is the worst food for a party is them saying, no, you chose the bad food. Them saying we shouldn't be playing Uno is them saying you chose a terrible game 
The complaints about the setup of the party is actually a complaint against the one who set it up. Listen to me. When you walk around complaining to this person and that person about the setup of your life, you're complaining about the God who set your life up. But, but there's something weird going on here. Because in Exodus, God says, y'all are complaining against me. That's not a good thing. Have you read the book of Psalms? You know, most of everything David says in Psalms is a complaint. He's probably one of the moodiest people we know in human history. Have you read the book of Lamentations? It's called Lamentation. Lament. Complaint. You know why Jeremiah, the author of that, wrote Lamentations? Because he wanted to complain in poetry form. (laughs) Nowhere in Scripture do we see God rebuking David or Jeremiah. So what's the difference between the children of Israel in the wilderness and David and Jeremiah? Check this, check this. Did you notice who they brought their complaint to? The children of Israel ran around and they were complaining to each other and to Moses. David and Jeremiah took that complaint straight to God. Listen, God makes room and space for your complaint. He just says, bring it to me. I don't want you going to them indirectly complaining about me. I want you to come to me directly and bring your complaint to me. The difference between a prayer and a complaint is who you address it to. Just as easy as you say, I hate this, you can look at God and say, God, I hate this. It's that easy. Listen, you're so much better off complaining to God than them. Here, at least you're talking to God when you're complaining to God. That's a relationship builder. When you go around not taking it to God, that will probably end up killing your relationship with God because you're separate of God, distanced from God, talking about what God's doing. Now you're probably disappointed in God. God says, take it to me. Listen, some of us might have grown up in a, in a, in a form of religious thought that says, I can't talk that way to God. One, read the Bible. Two, that's not true. Uh, my freshman year of uh, Bible college, I read a book in Old Testament history called The Bible That Jesus Read. One of the most impactful books in my life. And there was a chapter on David in the Psalms. And, and, and the author of that chapter, he had this one line, changed my prayer life. I remember all of it. Changed my prayer life. He said, God is stable enough to handle your instability. God's not threatened by your anger. God doesn't get defensive at your questions. God doesn't get nervous with your mood swings. He says, no, no, bring it to me. Talk to me about it. So lesson one is that a complaint not brought to God is a complaint brought against God. Here's lesson two. Lesson two is know that he, God, is here and he's providing for his people. He's here and he's providing for his people. You see what happens next. The Aaron, he, he gathers all the people. He says, hey, God wants to talk to y'all. Come on out. 
So the whole congregation gathers. And as soon as they all get together, it says behind Aaron into the wilderness, the cloud that's been following them, it says God's glory has started shining through it now. God's visibly showing himself to be present. I think what God's doing is he's giving them assurance that he's actually with them. Because I think at some point they started to doubt. We know this for sure in Exodus 17 that God was actually walking with them when they went through these problems. So, so he's, he's shining through the cloud to say, I'm here. Uh, you might not have known it or not, but State Farm was teaching you theology when they was on your TV. State Farm might not have known it either. You didn't know those commercials. Someone wrecks their car. They've got like a pelican that's flown through their windshield or something ridiculous. And someone's like, what are you going to do? And person's like, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And instantly Jake from State Farm pops up and he's there to help him. State Farm might not have known it. You might not have known it, but they're teaching you a small picture of who God is. Ever mess you find yourself in, he's there. And not is he just there, he's there to help. One of the differences among the many between God and State Farm is you don't got to say a jingle to get God to show up. He ain't never left. He's here. Psalm 46, 1, David says, God is our refuge and strength. Here's my favorite line, a very present help in the time of need. God's here and he's here to help. Listen to me, when you're feeling this legitimate lack and see no way to meet that need, one of the most crucial struggles you'll have is in believing that God who you can't see is your help, not the people and things that you can see. We're not careful. I think that's why the people started complaining to Moses. They could see Moses. So they thought, oh, no, we're going to complain to Moses because Moses is going to be the one that does something about this. No, no, no. God shows up to say, I know you can see your job. I know you can see your friends. I know you can see money. That's not your help. I am your help. Here I am. He's saying here, I'm your help. But then he gives them a specific help. You notice they probably had empty bags, empty stomachs, and no way to get anything. And so then he says, okay, y'all are hungry. Here's what, I, here's what I'll do. He, he said he made quail fall on the ground for them. Do you know what he would have to do to do that? He's taking a flock of birds in the middle of their migration, picking them up in the middle of the year, changing their course of migration, getting them to the camp in the middle of who knows where, and making them fall down on the ground and say, come eat me. I know some of you aren't meat eaters. God's an equal opportunist because the next morning he makes it real humid. There's dew on the ground. Somehow that dew starts to make bread. When the dew lifts, there goes frosted flakes on the ground for him. You notice God didn't teach people to hunt when they said they were hungry. God didn't tell the people, here's where you can go get food. God miraculously provided food. He was making it extremely clear. I am your provider. No one else. I'm your provider alone. Listen to me. God's your provider alone. Question I've been thinking my own head and about my own life and that I want to present to you is the question that Paul asked in 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you haven't received? What do you have in your life that you didn't receive from God? Questions rhetorical, the answer is obvious. Nothing. What do you have in your house that you haven't received? Who do you have in your life that you haven't received? What ability or thing you're proud of you being able to do that you haven't received? Nothing. It's all from the hand of God. You know, I like how God provides. There are two ways that he provides. Um, one way he'll provide directly. Um, so I like to shop a lot. Um, I like to shoe shop. One of my favorite experiences was uh, we were in Oklahoma City or somewhere. There's an outlet mall. And it was a Nike outlet. And we waited for 30 minutes outside of that line out of the Nike store to get into Nike. And we got in the Nike and it was a dream. Shoes everywhere. So I remember thinking, I want that shoe. And so I told, I told the worker, the Nike worker, and they go to the back. One of the most impactful experiences of my life was Nike themselves handing me that box of shoes. They hand delivered it to me. That's what God will do sometimes. God will hand deliver stuff to you sometimes. Uh, I was uh, praying with Tim. Uh, the staff was praying with Tim a few months ago. And Tim, he had this little bit of his prayer where he was talking about people in his life, thanking God for different people in his life. And he stopped and he said, I didn't go looking for these people. They just showed up. You know what that was? Hand delivery. There's some stuff in your life where you can look around and say, I didn't go looking for this. I didn't work for this. I can't explain how it got here. It just showed up because God hand delivered it to you. But then there's another way, because um, these shoes I have on right now, actually, I didn't get these from the Nike store. I uh, got on Google and searched Air Force Ones and found some and pressed click from Nike's website. And then a few days later, um, the UPS man knocks on my door and I think, this is happy mail. Has to be happy mail. And I open the door and it's the UPS guy. The UPS guy hands me the box. But it was still from Nike. They just used a delivery system to send it to me. That's what God will do. He'll, he'll provide for you, but use a delivery system. Because there's stuff in your life that you can't explain when you got it, how you got it, where you got it, what you did to get it. Listen to me, that doesn't negate God's provision. That explanation is the delivery system. That job is the way God delivered finances to you. Those people are the way God delivered resources to you. All of that is his delivery system. So what do you have that you have not received? Listen to me. One of the most dangerous things we can do is see the stuff in our life and the people of our life as coming into our life separate of the hand of God. If we don't see those things as in as being in God's hand, then we'll start seeing those things as the source and not a delivery system. I got comfort from some friends. In all reality, that was comfort from God through them to me, but I'm seeing it separate of God, so I see them as my source of comfort. And then you know what happens next? You start to put that God job on them. Let me tell you, friends, humans, work, yourself, will never live up to that job description. And that's where your disappointment's coming from. 
That's where your frustration is coming from. That's where your bitterness is coming from, because you're expecting them to do what only God can do. And when they don't live up to God's job description, you perceive them as having failed you. And now the relationship's broken. I looked at my boss, my leader, as the, the provider of my destiny. And when they're not working all things out for my good and putting me on the best path for my future, not the thing God's supposed to do. When they're not doing it, now I'm mad at them. I don't see the provision at my job as coming from God. I see it as coming from me. And now I'm stressing myself out, neglecting my family, working 60 hours a week because I put the God job on me. And I'm stressing, trying to, oh, friends, you've got to see everything is in the hands of God. That's why it's good to always thank God for everything. The more you thank God for everything, the more you remind yourself, oh, that came from his hand. That came from his hand. My wife, that came from your hand, God. This job, that came from your hand, God. This ability, that came from your hand, God. I thank you. That came from your hands. That's the second one. The third one is. Know that he wants you to always depend on him for everything. Know that he always wants you to depend on him for everything. If you ever wonder if I forget stuff while I'm up here preaching without notes, I just did. If it wasn't for that slide, I would have forgot that point. So you notice the pattern of how God had instructions for him. First, he said, I'm going to test the people when I provide for them. Testing is the process of seeing what's inside of a person. Like when you see a cookie with dark dots on it, you bite down inside of it to see if it's a raisin or a chocolate chip. God, God, he put these people through a process of seeing what was inside of them. And so here's the process. He told them, I want you to get some on Monday just for Monday. Get some on Tuesday just for Tuesday. You do that for five days out of the week. Then on the sixth day, Saturday, I want you to get some for Saturday and Sunday. And obviously they failed that test. It didn't do what he said. I was reading someone and they said, on one end, the test was for obedience. He wanted to see if obedience was inside of them. But even deeper, he wanted to see if belief was on the inside of them. Do you know how counterintuitive it was to tell starving people to only get enough food for one day? You know how counterintuitive it is to tell people who have no food, no money, no way to get it to only to not go out and get food on Sunday morning. They had to believe that God actually would provide for them. They had to believe that it would be enough the way God said it would be enough. Their obedience required belief. Can I sidebar really quick? Obedience requires belief. Beware of making anything other than belief your basis for obeying God. We'll slip up and make our own logic and, and, and way of reasoning the basis for belief, for obedience. If the command makes sense, if the word makes sense, then I'm going to obey. Friends, God's word doesn't always line up with your reason. Beware of making your preference your basis for obeying God. If it's what I prefer, if it's in line with my political leaning, then I'm down with it, God. If it's down with my societal and cultural trends, then I'm down with it. God's word won't always line up with those things. And when they don't, then we won't end up believing. No, no. God wants people who say, I'm obeying you, not because I prefer it, not because I understand it, but because I believe you. Obedience requires belief. And so he wants to see if these people could believe, but believe for what? 
You see the position God put them in? He only gave them enough for Monday so they'd have to come back on Tuesday. Then only gave them enough on Tuesday so they'd have to come back on Wednesday. Only gave them enough on Wednesday so they'd have to come back on Thursday. This was 40 years of waking up saying, we got to go get food from the hand of God. I think what he was doing is he was teaching them and forming this people to depend on God for everything, always. God's forming us, Christ Church. God's forming us Christians to depend on him for everything, always. Um, You've read F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, little book on Benjamin Button. Benjamin was born. He came out a 70-year-old man could hold conversations with adults when Benjamin was like three or so they kicked him out of school because he was taking naps in the middle of the day when old men take naps not when kids play Benjamin was 18 he got kicked out of college because they couldn't believe that this person who looked 50 was actually 18 when Benjamin was uh, 50 he enrolled back into college and became a football star because his body ended up peaking to that of a 20 year old When Benjamin was 22, he had to leave college because his brain had ended up developing to that of a 16-year-old, and so did his body. That he spent the winter years of his life being taken care of by a name by a man named Roscoe, then ended up uh, growing into a kindergartner. The the paradox of Benjamin's life is that he grew to look like a child. The paradox of the Christian life is that God wants you to grow to look like a child. Benjamin grew to look like a child in appearance. God wants you to grow to look like a child in dependence. He wants you like a child to to constantly mature into depending on him for everything. Listen, uh, independence and self-sufficiency is not a biblical virtue. I know when we are self-made and and taking care of ourself, we we get applause from a lot of people. They're not coming from God. Scripture never says anything about you being independent and self-sufficient. You know what it does say? God feeds the birds, won't he feed you? God clothes the flowers, won't he clothe you? My God will provide all, all, all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God's not looking for independent children. Parents, they'll provide for their kids for 18 years. Some 20, 25, 30. No longer than 30. With the goal of one day they'll be able to take care of themselves. Churches will plant other churches and they'll financially provide for them with the goal that in three to five years that new church will be able to take care of itself. Listen to me. God doesn't have a timeline or a goal on when you're able to take care of yourself. He's not taking you out of a spot of depending on him. This might be where some of our frustration is. Because we've been praying for God to provide or praying for God to do something. And he's answered it, but he hasn't answered it in a way to where we never have to think about that need anymore. You see, God didn't give them bread for the next year. That's why Jesus says, pray for your daily bread. Because God's not taking you out of this position of needing something from him. Because the minute he does that, you stop depending on him. He said, no, I'm going to keep you in this realm of need so you can continue in dependence. This is what our Christian life will be look like. God, I need you to help me forgive today. I go to sleep, wake up again. God, I need you to help me to forgive today. I go to sleep, I wake up again. God, I need you to help me to fight off this temptation again. I go to sleep. He might not ever. 
never take you out of the place of needing him. Because he wants to keep you in dependence on him. For everything always. Here's the last one, then we'll sit down. God wants you to go back and look at what he gave you. This ends out with Moses. He's now speaking into the future. And he's explaining to the future people, his, his audience, of why the tabernacle set up the way it is or why the temple set up the way it is. God tells Moses, you put some of that bread in a jar and you put it in the presence, in, in the testimony. That's in the Holy of Holies. And a little bit later, they built the tabernacle and they put that bread in the jar in the Holy of Holies. And so whenever they would tear down the tabernacle to move, the people could see that bread and they'd remember, oh, God has provided for us for everything always. Then when they, a little bit later, when they put the thing in the temple, the priest could go in and people would see, oh, yes, that's a reminder that God has provided for us for everything always. They do this for centuries of getting this constant reminder, looking at the bread that God is our provider for everything always. Then the Babylonians come into town, tear down the temple, take away the bread. We have no clue what happens to it. They come back 70 years later, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, but there's no bread. You could imagine how surprised these people are. 562 years later, when then there's young cat preaching, 85 miles away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. And he starts saying, actually, the true bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then his application to the sermon is, guess what? It's me. Can I tell you about this true bread of God that that person was talking about, which was himself? He's saying that I am the eternally begotten son of God. I am the the word outside of time and space. And I came into the world. How did I come into the world? I came into the world by stepping through the womb of a woman and completely taking on humanity. Right now, as I'm talking to you, I am all God and all person. Neither of them are confused, but I'm totally both of them. He says, and I'm giving life to you. I'm speaking so that you can hear God. I'm working so that you can see God. A little bit later, I'm going to die so that you can live with God. Here's what I like about that bread. In Exodus, Moses said that bread tasted like honey. You know what God said about the promised land? That it'd be full of honey. That bread was a foretaste of the promise. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Here it is. Oh, what a foretaste. Jesus, just like that manna, is a foretaste of the promise of God. Jesus is what we have to look forward to in heaven. He is what makes heaven heaven, and we have him right now on earth. Jesus will raise me up one day, but now that I have Jesus right now, I am alive on the inside. I am resurrected with him. Jesus will renew my body one day, but now that I have him day by day, he's renewing me. He's a foretaste of that which God has promised to us. Jesus is the true bread of heaven. I'm saying just like God told the people, go back and look at the bread. Go back and look at the bread. For some of us, go back, see the bread and live. Go back, believe and live. You see Jesus, this God man who came and died for your sins so that you can live with God and, 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 and restore completely the image of God in you. Believe and live with God. The rest of us, when we're in this 
place of legitimate need and don't see any way for that need to be met, he says, go back and look at the bread. Paul in Romans 8, he says, if God didn't withhold his son from us, won't he with him give us all things? In other words, you can see that God gave you Jesus and know that God will give you everything else that you need. This is probably the sermon I've preached the most frequently since I've been here, and it's because I I pray deeply that we be a community that always, always in any circumstance can say, great is your faithfulness, O God, my Father. There's no shadow of turning with me. All I have needed, your hands have provided. I pray that we can say that, that we can confess that in whatever situation we may be in. We look over our lives and say, I needed a community, and God, you gave me a family in your church. All I've needed, your hands have provided. I needed to live and you gave me your son. All I've needed, your hands have provided. I needed provision and you gave me food. It might not have been a lot, but we ate last night. All I've needed, your hands have provided. All that we've needed. Let's let's stand up together. Let's say communion. He's saying that when you're in this wilderness... For as long as you're in this wilderness, see Jesus. Know that God will provide. Depend on him always for it. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your goodness to us, your generosity to us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. You've never failed us. You've never let us down. Send the righteous, yours, they lack no good thing. We believe it. We say amen to that. You're our shepherd and we shall not want. We thank you, God. You've been good to us. Help us to depend on you more. Depend on you in a a new way. Depend on you for everything. Whatever area that we may not be depending on you, that we may be exercising some form of self-sufficiency, teach us to trust you and to depend on you. We as a church, individual families, individuals, we want to look to you wholly for everything. So help us. Help us. And we ask again today, give us our daily bread. Give us what we need. Give us the material provision we may need. Give us the spiritual provision we need. Give us the faith we need. Give us all that we need to do and be what you want of us. Amen.